Welcome to the UP Notable Books Club, brought to you by the Upper Peninsula Publisher and Authors Association. Tim Ellis and Brad Blair are veteran paranormal investigators who have traveled the country looking for the strange and weird. In 1999, Tim and Brad started the Upper Peninsula Paranormal Research Society with Steve LaPlante. They are the co-hosts of Creaking Door Paranormal Radio, co-founders of the Michigan Paranormal Convention, and co-authors of the paranormal hit book, Supernatural Haunts, and Great Lakes Monsters and Mysteries. Both have appeared in various documentaries and numerous publications. Okay, so hello everyone. It's nice to see you um, on our special Halloween edition of the UP Notables Book Club. And we have with us tonight, Tim Ellis and Brad Blair. If you'd like to wave, that would be hello. great. Um, it is nice to have you. And as people are coming on, um, we always talk a little bit about what the future holds. So next month, we are reading The Wicked Sister, and that is a two-time UP Notable Book um, winner. Um, why can't I think of her name? I know it. Karen. Karen, Karen Dion. Karen Dion. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I could not get it. Anyway, <laughs> and I read The Wicked Sister uh, when it first came out about a year and a half ago. And it's, it's really good. So if you like the Marsh King's daughter, it's it's similar. It's got some creepiness to it. It's a lot about family relationships. I think you'll all enjoy the talk. She's a very dynamic speaker. So that is going to be on November 10th, six o'clock central and seven o'clock Eastern time. And now we always turn it over to Victor to talk a little bit about any UPA news we might have. I hold here in front of me this year's issue of the UP Reader, and this is to remind everyone that you still have 30 days to submit stories, uh, up to 5,000 words to the UP Reader. Uh, the only condition is you have to join our group at uh, uppaa.org, and then you can submit your work. Uh, we take all kinds of stuff. We've had horror stories last year, uh, science fiction it doesn't have to be about the UP, but we do want people who are in the UP to submit their work, poetry. Uh, my favorite is when people send in stories of crazy stuff they did as a kid where they almost got killed. <laughs> I don't know why. I just like that kind of uh, adventure stories from, from younger days. So uh, that the contest closes on November 15th. So you've got until then to, to polish your story and, and send it in to us. We'd really like to get more and more people to participate. Uh, and now I'm going to give you my uh, my top three horror books for the season. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> first one is Dead of November, which was a former UP Notable Books winner by Craig Brockman. Uh, this is kind of a classic sort of weird tale stuff that I grew up with reading. And uh, all kinds of weird things are happening in, in the UP. Uh, ghosts are coming out of the lake and uh, strange phenomena are happening. It's a really fun read. And uh, even uh, Mishi Peshu shows up at the end. So there's some cool stuff there. The other one, uh, brand new, is The Biting Cold by Matthew Hellman. And this takes place all up in the Copper Harbor area which is completely cut off due to a, a massive snowstorm. And uh, it turns out there's, there's something strange that happened 175 years ago that caused everyone to flee the whole Keweenaw Peninsula. 
And uh, now that phenomenon has happened again, and uh, it's it's a really great uh, adventure kind of horror story, uh, The Biting Cold by Matthew Hellman. And the third one I want to talk about is A Youper's Tale, Death by Wendigo by Robert Hugh Williams. Uh, we all know the Wendigo is a, is a popular feature in, in UP horror. And this one is uh, also a bit of an adventure story. It involves uh, uh, young college students at Northern Michigan University who, go dis who disappear. And uh, it also involves that mysterious uh, club, the Huron Mountain Club, just outside of Marquette and abandoned mines and all kinds of creepy stuff. So uh, if you like uh, a good uh, adventure tale, uh, mm. consider that one. All right, I will turn it back over to Evelyn. Okay, and speaking about horror, I'm not sure. Um, I have a favorite horror author named Andy Davidson. Has anyone heard of Andy Davidson? Mm -hmm. um, we read, he was the Summer Scares pick a few years back, and we've been in touch with each other, and his latest, he has three horror books out. His latest one is out called The Hollow Kind. I'm reading it now, and he's agreed to do a Zoom that I'm going to be working with other libraries to kind of support, just a get to know an author Zoom. So I will send all of you UP Notable um, friends information about that if you want to learn about a neat horror author that really scares me to death. <laughs> his books are really good so speaking of horror we can't keep this we can't keep people waiting any longer tim ellis and brad blair the authors of great lakes mysteries and Mon monsters and mysteries take it away we are ready to hear from you thank you yeah pretty cool that you mentioned next month that you have the wicked sister coming on tim and i in fact just did a ghost hunt last night paranormal investigation at a restaurant here in sault st marie that's called the wicked sister so yeah we, we had a late night soon. last night so we're a little bit uh drowsy i guess today but thanks for having us on yeah for sure so if we do look a little tired bags under the eyes that's just because it was very very late night for us um last night here in sault st marie where as brad had mentioned and it's mentioned in the book if you had a chance to read it if not um that's what we're going to do here tonight is let you get to know us a little bit more exactly. There it is, uh, Great Lakes Monsters and Mysteries. It's actually Brad and I's second book that we've worked on together. We did the first one we did about four years ago now, which was also a uh, thank you for making it a UP notable book, uh, UP Natural Haunts, which is based on uh, over 20 years of our case files that we worked on together uh, as a team as the Upper Peninsula Paranormal Research Society, where Brad and I and another a uh, childhood friend of ours, Steve LaPlante, uh, started our, our group, the Upper Peninsula Paranormal Research Society. Uh, late 90s is when we started to work on it, and then 2000 is when we launched it as a team. But Brad and I and Steve, we've been together uh, going back to the first grade, <laughs> running the roads and looking for everything spooky and creepy. And uh, that's just kind of uh, the way, you know, what we love to do. And, and we never outgrew it. Uh, no much to the dismay of our parents and our and our now wives and uh we just continued to look for ghosts and monsters and uh they mentioned you mentioned the windigo in there um for uh, for the book one of the books and and you know the, the, those are the type of things we were looking for and mm -hmm. and running after as kids uh from the early days yeah when we sat down to write uh, great lakes monsters and mysteries what we really wanted to work on Supernatural haunts was 100 percent 
ghost and paranormal investigations. We wanted to get back though into the legends, into some of the cryptozoology, ufology, anything strange and weird that was in a state that connected to the Great Lakes. So with Michigan being the heart of that, of course, it was you know, a no-brainer for us to get right into our homeland here and, and start off. And then we branched off and hit some other legends and maybe some less notable creature sightings from throughout the Great Lakes region. Yeah, so, you know, before we jump in and we can certainly uh, share some of the PowerPoint that that Brad and I have been, have been speaking on over the last couple of years on our uh, Great Lakes Monsters and Mysteries. Brad and I have been touring and, and speaking at libraries and conventions for many, many years now. So we've got probably close to 10 or 12 different talks we do. Prior to the writing of the books, we would give talks on just kind of certain areas of the paranormal and everything weird that we experienced uh, growing up that, you know, that we would speak on. But then once the books came out, obviously, we were able to create talks around centered around the books as well. But uh, this is something as far as getting out there and speaking and talking about this subject matter that we love so much, uh, something we've been doing for quite a while. So, I mean, I guess before we jump into any of the PowerPoint and, and can show you some of that and happy to share that with you, do you, are there any questions or, or anything prior to heading into that? All right. Yeah, let's, let's go ahead and share some of our uh, our present it's it's a uh, it's based to be a little bit over an hour talk so we might have to fast forward a little bit uh some of it for you here to keep everyone within our hour window that i know we want to try to keep it in so let's go ahead and uh fire up our share screen here and then we'll fire up the okay the slide so yeah we'll just go ahead and get through this uh the intro of it and uh so this is where it really all began for brad and i and uh, that's Brad right there with all the funky hair. And this is me in the leisure suit that my mom dressed me in for some reason. And we're not sure. I, I still don't know why she dressed me in that, but she did. But literally, this goes all the way back to first grade where we first met. Um, and then the gentleman who is two to my right, that is Steve LaPlan. He is the other founding member of our team, the Upper Peninsula Paranormal Research Society. And the three of us, we gravitated to each other immediately because we were the weird kids that... <laughs> love to tell the ghost stories and and just talk about ghosts and watch scary movies and uh back in those grades uh first grade and and even you know through elementary when we would be invited to birthday parties half the birthday party would want to hang out with us and the other half wanted nothing to do with us because because we were the ones telling the ghost stories and and some kids loved it and and some didn't for sure but that really is where it all began for us that's when we realized uh we had this this fascination for all the fun stuff we went through uh, elementary school. We went through high school all together. And in those days, that's when, um, you know, in elementary school, we'd have fun telling the ghost stories uh, along with middle school. Then we would start to kind of take our Ouija boards and, and check out some cemeteries. And then once we got in old enough to have our driver's license, we'd go out and try to find the old abandoned houses. And that's just how we spent our time. It's what we love to do. Then we all went off to college and university and graduated and as fate and life would have it we all ended up back here in Sault Ste. Marie working in our careers which is a fast you know a wonderful thing that it worked out that way and that's when we knew we had to kind of take it to the next step we we still loved everything weird and strange but we knew if we ran through cemeteries and old abandoned houses at 21 and 22 years old that they, they call that getting arrested at that age and we did not want to get arrested so we had to kind of make it a legit thing so that's when we started the upper peninsula paranormal 
Research Society and the team you see there, that's pretty much the team we've had since day one. We truly are a family, a dysfunctional family, but we love each other like a family. And uh, we've been doing this together for a long, long time. We were doing it, uh, as Brad and I tell people, we, were, we, we started doing this long before uh, the TV shows even started. And uh, back in those days, when you told people what we did, they looked at you like you had three heads. The TV shows came out and it, it changed everything for people who were in the field. Don't know if you've heard about it, but in 2009, Brad and I uh, co-founded the Michigan Paranormal Convention, which this coming year in August, we will be celebrating our 13th annual. And uh, it has grown to be one of the largest in the country now of conventions that are just focused on the paranormal. We bring in all the big names from the TV shows, all the authors, regional people, and uh, it's just uh, two and a half days of lectures and workshops and everything that revolves around this subject matter. And it's it's really gotten uh, become quite something that we're very proud of. It's right here in Sault Ste. Marie at Kuwait and Casino. And uh, that's every year, the last weekend of August. And in 2009, Brad and I created that one. We were actually coming back from other conventions back in those days. We wanted to um, learn as much as we could as we were trying to get into the field and, pre and work with our team. We would travel to all these other conventions and we were flying back from Florida one day and we're like, what do you think if we tried to, something like this in Sault Ste. Marie? We had no idea what we we're doing. We gave it a shot in the dark and it seems to have caught on. So we're pretty happy about that with the MI Paracon. In 2014, Brad and I took our love for radio because Brad worked in radio uh, through his uh, high school and college years. I went to school for radio and that's what I do now as a profession. So we took our love of radio. We took our love of everything weird and we created Creaking Door Paranormal Radio, which can be found out there on all the ma uh, main uh, podcast sites, yeah, platforms, and, and our home at eagleradio951.com. So uh, if you enjoy this kind of stuff and you're looking for some podcasts, we've got all our shows out there too that you can download and listen to for free. Uh, 2019 is when we created our first book, Supernatural Haunts. The three of us, the founding members, um, created. We, we It was a lot of fun to go back and look into our old case files. We pulled out over 20 years of case files together, reminded us of some that we, you know, almost forgot a lot of the really crazy details about the investigations. And that's what this first book is about. And then two years later, Brad and I released uh, what was originally supposed to be our first book, but sometimes things just happen and Supernatural Haunts became our first one. This became our second one. And that's the one we're here with today with Great Lakes Monsters and Mysteries. Now, at any time, anyone has any questions while we're going through this, please yeah. uh, feel free to chime in. Yep, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, so as Brad had already mentioned, uh, the book, when we set out to create Great Lakes Monsters and Mysteries, we wanted to definitely give it a bigger footprint than Supernatural Haunts, which is mostly the UP in northern lower Michigan. We wanted to any any state that touched the Great Lakes hence the Great Lakes region, it was fair game for us to research and try to find some of the most amazing, crazy stories out there that we could find and, and put it onto the pages of this book. And pretty much what you see, we, we've got it all. We cover it all in this book, Land, Sea, Sky, and Beyond. And land is where we're going to start here. Now, the artwork, if, if you've seen the book or if not, you're going to see some of the artwork here tonight. The artwork, we absolutely love. It was actually done by a friend of ours here in Sault Ste. Marie, um, I, I don't know if you, any of you remember the, the books, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Uh, they were a favorite of Brad's and I when we were growing up. We loved those books and the artwork in it. It disturbed us as children, and we love them as adults. 
And we told our friend, we said, this is what we have in mind, but you have creative freedom. And all the artwork you see in the book was hand-drawn by a friend here in Sault Ste. Marie. He, he, he absolutely nailed it. So with that, we're going to go ahead and start with land. And with that, I'll hand it over to Brad to touch on some of these uh, wonderful little creatures. Yeah, a lot of what we hit on in the books revolved around Native American lore being so rich throughout the UP and, and the whole Great Lakes region. The Pukwudgies has been one of my favorite tales growing up, the, the vanishing little people, as the Ojibwe call them. Uh, we have one experience I touch on in the book a little bit that really sticks in my mind because it was a personal experience. I was working on Mackinac Island with an event, and we were actually doing a ghost hunt down on the waterfront near Mission Point Resort. And we were walking along that night, and, and one of the ladies in the group said, I, I need you to come and see something. And there were these little lights that were flickering around down on the waterfront. And then they were solid and started coming towards the group. And one after another, after another. And, and the next thing we knew, there were five that were wrapping around people's legs, intertwining through. They were way too fast to be fireflies. And they, they were holding their bioluminescence. It, it was so weird and so creepy. And it goes back to native lore. Uh, the, the natives would see these and they thought they were trickster spirits. And these little people, they called them. If you translate it into European lore, this is more along the line of the fae or the fairy folk. So the, these were alive and well on Mackinac Island. And we've read stories in the past of how Mackinac Island was known for these creatures back in native days and still are today. And had we actually followed these, they would have led us right off a small cliff into Lake Huron. So there is still something we think of a trickster nature to them. Uh, that That's one of the... Uh, the bigger piece of the land chapter that we touch on and and something that we've experienced firsthand which was something I really enjoyed drawing from in the book for the book was going back to firsthand experiences from some of our adventures through the years of course Bigfoot you know how do you not if you're going to talk about the north and the Great Lakes region although he's he's more known uh and and actually the name Bigfoot as we know it was not given to this creature until uh, the early 1900s out west, where he's very well known in the Seattle and the mountain areas up there in Washington and in California. But when you do your digging and you do your research, there are a ton of, of firsthand sightings here in, uh, in, in the Great Lakes region, especially even right here in Michigan and the UP. And it'd be interesting to know, you know, uh, I'm assuming most of our people who are here with us tonight are, we're all fellow Upers. And if any of you have ever had any experiences on what you believe could be uh, a Bigfoot or also known as Yeti or Sasquatch, um, just earlier this summer, wasn't it? Springtime? Brad and I were called in. Last fall. Or last fall. Okay. So yeah, we're coming up on a year now. So, it's been recent. And she actually reached out, uh, reached out to Brad. And I'll let you tell that part about it. Uh, the lady who reached out here. Yeah, we, we received a call, uh, an email. Uh, the, this lady had been referred to us, which we don't do a lot on the cryptozoology side of things, but we grew up studying, you know, these strange creatures. And we read about these in books as kids. So it was, it was kind of cool when we got this notification that it was an older lady that lived out in a, right next to a game preserve, about 10 miles outside of Sault Ste. Marie. And she said, I, I had my dogs barking at the windows going crazy for two or three nights in a row, but there was nothing there. And she said, finally, I went out one morning 
She said some of the branches and the trees were broke and they were higher up. And she said, I noticed that and I thought it was very odd because it was almost to the point where a bear would have had to have been standing up and, and reaching paw, paw high to hit these seven, eight foot branches. And she said, then I walked down by this gravel road in front of the house in a very rural area. And I found this giant footprint. So she had seen some of these shows uh, that cycle around Bigfoot and different cryptids. And, and she knew enough that she went and had her husband go get her a, a bag of plaster. And she actually casted the footprint and brought it in and wanted us to come out and take a look at it. And we said, sure, we, we have, you know, we're not experts in that side of the field, but we, we'd love to come and look. We'd love to take some pictures and interview you on it. Uh, so we got there and you, you, you always wonder when people call you on these cases, sometimes uh, they're a little bit out there, <laughs> believe it or not, but most of the time they're sincere people. And that's what it turned out to be in this case. Uh, th this lady knew exactly what she was seeing. She hadn't seen the creature, but the footprint was so convincing that we, uh, she wouldn't let us take it, unfortunately. But she let us take some pictures with it, do the measurements. Uh, do we have the picture on here? It's not on the present on this particular okay. presentation, but I did find it. That's why I picked up my phone and I'm, if we can try to get a picture of it there. That's actually myself holding the cast that she made. And you can see uh, the size of it. Not a lot of detail in this picture because it's a picture of a picture through the, the camera here. But you can at least see the size of what she made the cast of, which was uh, uh, it was it was pretty pretty darn interesting one of the in, in our in, in our entire lives uh first time seeing anything like that and that was pretty amazing yeah and we we actually took that picture to a friend of ours who has been on television and bigfoot specific shows and he was very impressed he, he was looking at the the ridge in the foot the size of it, it measured right around 16 inches and he said you know this really fits right in with most footprints that we get cast and brought to us. So we thought that was very interesting. Um, something else we started researching into a little bit more. And within the same year, we had a young lady that was hiking out at Tequamanon Falls contact yeah. us, had some pictures of, we don't know what it was, we couldn't see a face, but a very large hairy creature standing behind a tree. She said she felt overwhelmingly afraid when she got a glimpse of this and it was like it was hiding a little bit from her in the woods she took off and ran but she did snap a couple of pictures again those we sent in to some friends that were expert in the field and those that's just two of the uh, these up sightings of bigfoot that have gotten very popular in pop culture mm -hmm. that we we kind of fed on some of this uh these stories when we were working on the book so it was very neat to have these popping up and kind of, I don't want to say validate because we're not sure what they were, but just to see that legend keep feeding on and that there's still some belief out there. Yeah, I expanded the uh, screens a little bit just so I can ask real quick. Um, has anyone here had any type of experience in the Upper Peninsula area that you believe could have been something along the lines of uh, some type of Bigfoot? Let me check the other screen. All right, I'm seeing no hands going up. So, and not not surprised. I mean, it's not uh, they're they're not that common to be to be honest. So I see um, a hand. Ann Duncan has a hand. She's, who did? I'm sorry, I must have missed one. Un unmute yourself, Ann. There we Can go. Can you hear me now? Okay, I just wanted to mention that Menominee has a Bigfoot convention every June. Yes. Yeah. yeah we are. Yeah. We, 
Yeah, I missed it this summer because it was the UPA annual meeting, but I have gone to it and you hear some pretty incredible stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you sure I, do. I think and there's a Bigfoot ranch around outside of Menominee too. A Bigfoot ranch. Oh park. yeah, I hadn't heard about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's just outside the city limits. One thing Brad and I learned when we were researching this book and, and a lot of the stories we tried to at least get the an interview with, with the person that that was involved in the situation. And the one thing we learned and 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 we we knew this going into the book because of how many paranormal investigations we've done through the years and how many families and people we've dealt with and interviewing them. But I don't know what it was, but it was something that just kind of solidified what we already knew, which is when people have these experiences, no matter how outlandish they might sound to someone else, it's their experience. They believe it. You can't take that away from them. And that's good on them. It, they're the ones who saw it, witnessed it, lived whatever the experience was. And we really, I think we got so used to hearing ghost stories that it was just second nature to believe what they were telling us. But when we went out of our comfort zone, as Brad said, and started researching more into the UFOs and sea creatures and Bigfoot and other uh, anomalies like that, it really hit home for us that, man, these people are sincere about what they experienced and felt and saw. One of them really was this Bigfoot story, and I'm not going to get too far into the one that's actually in the book because it's one of the longer stories, um, and I don't want to take up too much time, but it's a really, it's, it's such an interesting story back in 2015 about a, a single mom um, with her daughter who moved into a farmhouse, and you hear stories about Bigfoot and all the stories you hear are actually stories of people who are afraid of him, him or her. Uh, they're worried that he's mean. Is he mean? Is he attacking campers? Whatever. This story actually kind of starts out that way because the family's so frightened, but the ending is really, really one that I would never expect from a Bigfoot experience, but that's what I loved about it. One of the things I learned from this uh, research is that the one thing Bigfoots enjoy is rutabaga who would have known rutabaga at least this bigfoot like rutabaga uh in that story so it's a fascinating story about a mom and daughter uh and what they believe is a bigfoot that is truly watching over them but we'll leave it at that the bear walker too is another fascinating one in this area as brad had said a lot of our research kept kind of coming back to or falling into native legends and lore because of of how deep their history is rooted here uh, in, in the Great Lakes region. And Bear Walker was an absolutely fascinating one. Um, in, in kind of finding the different stories about it, finding some legal stories, actual uh, legal binding court cases where one father literally cannibalized his own family, but tried to use the defense that he was a Bear Walker. And, uh, and that's why he did it where the 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 court basically said no you you literally psycho yeah you're psycho and you were is the dead of winter and you cannibalize your own family but there are a couple different uh stories out there of people who you actually tried to use it as a court defense but the legend of the bear walker is quite a dark and sinister one where it it it, it they say you can sit in the pews of church on a sunday but you're doing the devil's work by monday because if you have the curse of the bear walker or the power of it, depending on how you embrace it, you have to take at least one life a year. Otherwise, the curse takes you. Now, the way you become a bear walker 
is not like the vampire story or the werewolf story where you get attacked by one and then you're one. It's actually much more creepier and sinister than that. Uh, Bear Walker, when they know they're kind of on their deathbed or they're getting ready to pass, they have to pass it along to someone else. And the way they do that is they simply say they'll find a stranger and they'll just tell the stranger, hey, come here, I have a secret to tell you. And then he will whisper to them that he is a bear walker and he is passing it on to them. And then just like that, this innocent person now is a bear walker. And I think that's kind of rude, right? I mean, why would someone, I would never want anyone to do that to me. Just take my, my, uh, my, my own personal boring life away and make me a bear walker. But I always found that part of, of, the, of the legend really creepy and sinister. But it is a huge, interesting uh, story of the Great Lakes region, for sure, the bear walker. And we do touch on that in the book as well. Now the sea, how can you not? We're surrounded by the, the beautiful Great Lakes and there are so many stories out there. This one that Brad researched is absolutely fascinating. And this is still an ongoing case that they're, they're still researching this. Underwater archeologists are still trying to figure out the exacts on this. Now, if you look at the middle, uh, the middle picture here, most people will recognize that as Stonehenge in England. A beautiful site, I've had the Good graces to be there with my family. And that is dated to be approximately 3000 BC, so about 5,000 years old. Uh, some years back, there was a, I believe he was a professor of underwater archaeology that was doing some side scanning sonar work in Lake Michigan. And he was looking for shipwrecks. He had no interest in anything else. But this strange outcropping started showing up. And what you see in the other pictures here are what he found, which is another large stone circle, or what is now being called the Lake Michigan Stonehenge, that is somewhere off of Grand Traverse Bay. We don't know exactly where. As I said, it's still being researched. They don't want people messing with it for obvious reasons. This dates back at least 10,000 years, as best they can tell, making that twice as old as the famous Stonehenge of England. Right. Uh, can you put the, your, we're not seeing the pictures anymore. Oh, oh. what'd you do, Tim? <laughs> I <don't know. laughs> um, Sorry about that. Are you seeing any of them right now? Nothing? No. Lost All right, let me. Uh, I think, I think when you went out and then you came back in, somehow we didn't get that. Yeah. Well, we're seeing them. Oh, oh you guys can see them? Yes, yeah. I can see it. Okay. Yes. Oh, everybody can see them. Okay, well, maybe it's <laughs> on the mermaid slide right now. Yeah, yeah there's okay. the mermaid in the lighthouse. Everything's good. Sorry, sorry. Keep okay. going. Okay. All right. No so worries. We'll go back to. Uh oh. <laughs> now you broke it. Yeah. <laughs> oh no. Oh, Let's no. Uh, see if we can. Um... So the the this this. Underwater Stonehenge, one, one of the giveaways on it as far as they're, they're having a very difficult time doing any type of carbon dating on it. Uh, they, they did find some stone uh, that had some different characters chiseled into them that they have dated back to at least 10,000 years. It, it's a fascinating story. It was one of my favorite ones to research in the book. It's not a long story. There's not a lot that's been published yet about it. Uh, there. But can you see it now? Do we have it now? Yes. Okay. But it, it's something I keep digging into and waiting for something else to be released on or more information on it. 
but it, it's right here in the middle of the Great Lakes, right off of Michigan. So it's it's one of these archaeological mysteries that we seem to be so abundant with right here in the Midwest. Uh, go ahead, Tim, let's pop it forward. So this is just some, some rough footages of the lakes. This is another one of my, uh, my favorites that I covered in the book. And this is very interesting because it was documented in an Ontario courtroom. Uh, there was the Voyager and his crew, Venant St. Germain, back in 1782, who was off of, uh, off of Isle Royale. He was exploring Lake Superior, as most of it was fairly unknown at the time, outside of the native tribes. And he had a native guide with him. And they were setting up camp right off Isle Royale. And he looked out in the water and there was something that had popped up and he, he watched for a little bit and it submerged again, got a little closer to the shore and popped up again. And he looked and what he described was a creature that had the upper torso and face of a small human, but it kind of turned to scales when it got down around the stomach area. And he grabbed his gun. He was very creeped out. He was going to take a shot at this thing. He, he thought if he could kill it and bring it in and find out what it was. Uh, but it, before he could pull the trigger, his Native American guide tackled him. And, and they got into a violent row and said, no, no, you no shoot. Nibinabe. This is Nibinabe. Very sacred to the Native people. If you shoot at that, we're all doomed. Everybody will die. And basically that there would be a curse had he taken a shot, tried to harm this creature, the Nibinabe, in any way. And what the natives called the Nibinabe in this region are what most seafaring races would know as mermaids. And this was one of the only mermaid cases I could find in the Great Lakes, but it was a fascinating one because not only did this man and his crew, Venant St. Germain and his crew, swear to this, that they saw this creature, but he ended up towards the end of his life in a courtroom, as I'd mentioned, in Ontario, and he had all of this taken down for public record. He didn't want people to think he was crazy. He wanted this to be the official word that these creatures actually live in the Great Lakes region. Yeah, and, and the one thing we kept finding during our research for this book, um, how many times our research kept bringing us back to this area known as Isle Royal, which is, it is part of the Upper Peninsula. It is just on the Canadian border. On the, on the top left map, it is that top pink island you see. And then over here to the right is the, the closer area of it. And it, there's something very special, uh, very uh, mysterious about that area. Um, it, it was an area that was very, very, it was sacred to the sacred, natives as yes. well. There. Yeah, to the natives. And it was a big place for the natives in that area, not only just for fishing and living, but because of the, the, the religious aspect of it for them too. So a lot of our research kept bringing us back to this area. Another thing we did too, we did, it's not mentioned in the book, but later on we went back to, if you've ever heard of what ley lines are, if you're familiar to the whole UFO uh, aspect or the energy of the earth as well, uh, it's a, there's there's this belief called ley lines, which is there they are energy uh, circles that go around the earth and they all kind of intersect. And it seems like 
different special places throughout the world kind of connect to these ley lines. And when you lay the ley line map over this area, they all start to come towards Isle Royal as well, which was very interesting post writing the book. And so, yeah, again, talking about Isle Royal and, uh, and, and some of the ancient mining that, that possibly went on there, uh, ancient mining possibly happening long before some of the history books believe it was ever happening in this area. Um, one of the research we did for a thing called the Newberry Stone or the Newberry Tablet, which is in the book, um, puts, you know, is it possible through that where ancient uh, Minoans here long before they ever thought they could have been in here long before the history books, right when people would have been here other than the the traditional um, Native Americans that were in this area. So it's just it, this area is such an amazing place to do some research about and find out, uh, you know, more about it. Now, one of the things that just kind of happened by mistake, um, Google Earth, Google was doing a mapping of, of the area. And if you look in this top right one, the blue uh, picture of Isle Royal, you'll see kind of up by the Canadian border there that that kind of weird shape that's down in the water that had never been witnessed before seen before by anyone before the powerful camera of Google was able to pick that up. And so people became interested in it immediately this anomaly what was it, and why is it there, because when you actually kind of break it down they've never spent as far as we know. Uh, any money to actually go down there and do any research yet because it isn't such uh, deep water. But when they actually were able to break it down and take a look at it, those are almost perfect walls all the way around, quarter mile walls from top to bottom around that entire thing, three miles long, two miles wide. You know, of course, the, the theorists started right away. What was it? What could it be? Um, interesting enough, though, uh, off the coast um, in Miami, uh, another area that was very, very sacred to the Native Americans, um, found another underground anomaly different shape, but kind of the same size overall as the one that was found up by Isle Royal. So uh, just interesting stuff there with the, the, the secrets that are in the water that uh, that is so untouched by man yet. And some of some of the theories about it is it could it be possible uh, underwater bases for UFOs, because that's a big thing in this area. Um, they're called uh, USOs, not UFOs, but unidentified submersible objects and uh, reports of sailors from the earliest days of these objects coming into the water or just shooting out of the water. And so some people thought, well, maybe, maybe a base for them. Who knows? I mean, it's kind of a far-fetched one, but it's interesting to think about what that could be. But as interesting and as, as, as weird as the, and, and beautiful as the seas are in our area, it's the skies as well and what's been seen in this area. And uh, this is an interesting one, uh, Point Pleasant in West Virginia, but how it ties over to the Great Lakes area and that this was another one of Brad's. Yeah, most people when they hear about if they're familiar at all with the, uh, the legend, the stories and the tales of the Mothman, they think about the Silver Bridge collapse in West Virginia in 1967. This is the incident that they did a Richard Gere movie on. Still I, bad. This really horrible bad. movie. Horrible. We, we, we think uh, back in the probably early 90s or so that would have came out yeah. in Mothman Prophecies. And it was about the story of this bridge collapsing and the sightings of the Mothman were believed to be an omen. He was sighted around this area by teenagers, by law enforcement for weeks before this bridge collapsed. After the bridge collapsed in December during a heavy holiday traffic, he disappeared. 
nobody reported them in that area again and they thought you know this was some kind of a portent of doom but it turns out it wasn't the only time that this type of creature has been spotted uh not so long ago and continuing to this day there have been these sightings in chicago of this winged creature that just seems to glide you know all of the tales of the mothman that we've come upon one thing remains constant it doesn't seem to move its wings to propel itself they seem more to steady it there there must be some other type of propulsion and these are just a few uh mainly tabloid pictures that came to us uh, that people in the chicago area have taken and when we started digging into it a little bit more it turns out this very similar creature was spotted by farmers in Indiana uh, in the last several years. And they, one man in particular and his wife had an encounter and he told her flat, flat out, you do not talk about this. We don't want all of the neighbors thinking we're crazy. So naturally the next day, the wife was having coffee with the neighbors and says, guess what we saw? And goes on to explain and describe exactly this mothman type creature that was flying over their fields uh, in Indiana. And as it turned out, the neighbors had also saw it. They were encountering something, whether it was the same creature that was seen in West Virginia. There were many similarities. Uh, we're not sure. We're not sure on that one. Very creepy story. Nowhere near as creepy though as, go ahead, Tim, Bat Squatch. This is one of my all-time favorites. Very rare. We don't hear of a lot of sightings. There was one uh, some years back in La Crosse, Wisconsin, just outside, a couple guys were heading home one night. They were in a truck. And from what they recount, this large creature with about a 12-foot wingspan, the head that they described as being somewhat similar to a German shepherd with fur, uh, protruding rib cage, swooped down in front of their truck. How did they know it was a 12-foot wingspan? Well, they said when it stopped and landed, after they hit the brakes, that its wings, when it held its arms out, were actually longer than the front of the truck. So they they were creeped out, as I would be too. I just the story in and of itself is creepy enough. They went home, uh, didn't really say much about it to anybody outside the direct family, and then this creature started getting spotted around the lacrosse area. It was in trees. It was on housetops. People would hear something large on their roofs. And possibly the most disturbing accounts were people's pets started to go missing for a period of about two weeks. People were afraid to let their dogs out or put the cats out because this creature was being spotted and all of these animals were disappearing in the area. And as suddenly as it started, the thing vanished, disappeared. They didn't see it again. It was almost as if it was on a migratory pattern which we wonder with these creatures. It was late fall that it was spotted. And could something like this be lurking out there in the deep forests of the UP, Ontario, uh, someplace that it's making its way south for the winter? You know, in, in the sky for as much nowadays as we sit and have our heads down on our cell phones, uh, who knows what's going on up above us? So th this was one of the creepiest creatures though that we got had the opportunity to research when writing this. If you're a fan of beer, there's a, a brewery out in Oregon that makes a bat squatch beer. And it's not that good, but it's, <laughs> but it's neat to drink because it's uh, to, to think that someone created a beer off, off of this creature, of all the creatures to choose, and they choose bat squatch. 
Uh, but yeah, as you're looking to the sky for whether it be Mothman or, or Bat Squatch or whatnot, uh, UFOs. I mean, how do, how do we not talk about UFOs in this area too? Uh, this, this reporting here from the National UFO Reporting Center I found absolutely fascinating. Um, of all of the Great Lakes states, look how high most of them ranked. Uh, most of them in the top 10, uh, of course, Minnesota and Wisconsin. Uh, bringing up the rear, but we won't hold that against them. Uh, that's that's on them. Um, but yeah, I mean, e even Michigan ranking ninth in the nation for reported UFO sightings. And so the little green men and the, and the little gray men, um, fascinating stories that we have on there of one that was uh, a Coast Guard ship. It was a, it was a Coast Guard cutter called the Sun Dew, and it was a buoy tender. Uh, their job was to simply tend the buoys um, out in the area of, of the Great Lakes. And they were going through the area called the Apostle Islands out by Wisconsin in the very far west part of the UP, which I'm sure many of you are, are familiar with. And it was a cold fall morning, it was early, and they were just doing their routine checks of the buoys through the Apostle Islands. And as they came out of the Apostle Islands on, on the Northeast side, they were going to head out uh, towards the, the Keweenaw Peninsula and out into Lake Superior and do some drills and, and do some testing. And as they're heading out there early this morning, one of the watchmen um, on, on the deck all of a sudden sees about uh, 500 uh, feet just out, out off the side of the boat, this object that is there with lights turning. And it's right there in front of him. And he can absolutely cannot believe what he is seeing. And this is a trained military service person. And he immediately radios up to the, the bridge and says, are you guys seeing anything on the radar or seeing anything else? And they're like, no, the radar right now is showing absolutely clear. What are you witnessing? And he tells them. And so by then, a, another service person had come over. So now you got two people uh, seeing it. And then a third comes. And you've got multiple people staring at this object now. And by then, the scuttle had reached the captain. And he wanted to come up and see what was going on. He comes up to the deck. By then, the object had just left. It disappeared as quickly as it showed up. So the captain just told the gentleman, you know, you, you must have been imagining it, seeing something else. Uh, you know, don't worry about it. Let's get back to, to work. At that time, he leaves. Another watchman comes up on deck. And just like the first watchman, this object appears out of nowhere. And again, he now radios up to the deck. Deck says, there's nothing on our radar. So the, the word spread quickly and people started to come up to see this object. By then the captain heard about the scuttle again. He was getting upset. He was cranky now. He goes up there ready to scold the men, but now he sees it. And you've got all these trained military people staring at this object that they cannot, um, they, they don't know how to describe it other than a flying disc with lights going around it. So immediately the captain gets on the radio he calls over to uh, Coast Guard Sector uh, Calumet. He gets a hold of the Canadian Coast Guard Sector, and he gets hold of Coast Guard Sector here in Sault Ste. Marie. They were the last ones that they called. And they said, are you guys doing any type of drills out in Lake Superior, flares, anything that could be causing something? And they're like, there's absolutely no drills, nothing going on. Canadian Coast Guard said the same thing. There's nothing happening on Lake Superior today. And then just as the first time, um, all of a sudden, this object is gone. So what did they see that day? All they can say is what they witnessed, which was this disc with these lights that showed up and left as quickly as it wanted to. And again, anytime you can get stories like this that 
are collaborated with uh, trained, whether it be military, uh, police, fire, um, you know, anyone you put in a higher regard, military, and, and they're the ones who are witnessing it, and it's witnessed by multiple of them, and they can all collaborate and, and, and say, yes, this, this is what happened. Those are pretty powerful moments in research for stuff like this, for sure. Beyond, that's um, exactly what it sounds like. We, we hit all of the main uh, known areas and, and things. There's some neat stories, the Mineral Point Vampire. Um, I know we're starting to run a little late here, so it, it, it's rather fascinating in that I think vampire was a misnomer for the character, but it's been spotted many times. It seems to go dormant for several years in the town of Mineral Point, Vampire, uh, Wisconsin, excuse me. Uh, but it, it's been popping up for at least the last three decades that we know of, this creature in a long flowing cloak with pale skin that comes after people. I'll let you read some of those encounters in the book so we make sure we have enough time here to take some questions. Yeah, and then another thing um, for kind of uh, the the kind of uh, ending chapter, actually there's a whole other chapter in our book too that we'll touch on here real quick, but um, Black Eyed Kids, or they're known as Bex. If you've ever heard of them, then you might know what this is about. If you haven't, they're probably one of the, the, the more recent creepy as, 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 as all get out urban legends um, that literally when I was writing the, the story that the story for Black Eyed Kids in our book, it took me about three nights to finish it after all the research and then sitting down and taking the notes and putting it together. It took me about three nights to read it. And those three nights... I had horrible night sleeps. I, it bothered me writing this story to think that someone actually witnessed this. Again, going back to what we said earlier, what people go through, that it's their reality. Whether it sounds utterly out of this world to us, it doesn't matter. It's what they went through. And to have this story relayed to me and then to put it on paper, it was it was a very disturbing um it was it was it was a tough part to write for the book it was fascinating absolutely fascinating but very dark and very heavy now the one part in our book that brad and i absolutely love and we don't we don't ever talk about it in our talks but it's actually the last chapter in the book and it's called tales from the creaking door which going back to the intro is, is our podcast and at the end of every episode we do a mailbag segment with our listeners and we allow our listeners to send us anything, whether they have questions or stories they want to share. We went back and kind of picked out our favorites from some of the wonderful stories that they shared with us. And I think we picked two or three each. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So there's either there, uh, there's four or six stories in there, but, or six, but that actually became one of our favorite chapters because when you took all those great stories and put them together in one area, we're like, man, the, our listeners have some awesome stories. So check that chapter out too, if you ever get a chance to, but one, we'll go. Yeah. One go disclaimer on that chapter is these were sent in, they were listener letters. They were sent in and we had no real way of going back. We, we had to take them at face value what they sent in. So we're, we're not going to sit here and vouch for any of them. We're just saying they were great stories mm -hmm. and they were sent to us as nonfiction. So take them for what they are. If nothing else, it's a great creepy read for the holiday season. You bet. Good ghost stories for, for October. But yeah, Brad, great point there on that too, for sure. Probably why I think we decided not to put it on our presentation because we had no way to validate them other than they were presented to us as, as what they experienced and, and then we simply shared them. But with that, we'll go ahead and uh, take the screen off and then open it up to 
any questions or 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 comments, we we'd love to hear from you. Even if it's not about this book, if you have any questions uh, about 20, uh, 25 years of, of chasing ghosts. Yeah, Shelly. I know in the book, there's a, I ran across a mention of Canada and you just did it again when you're talking about Isle Royal, but is there any reason that you didn't do some exploration in Canada? Uh, just mainly with uh, Canadian stories. And we do get called once in a while to handle ghost cases up there. Uh, it gets to be an issue at the border for us to go firsthand and do anything across, especially when we were kind of putting the, the finishing touches on a lot of this. We were dealing with some of the COVID issues still. Um, it, there, there's, there have been some legalities with that. We do, uh, we touch a little bit on some Wendigo cases from Canada. And I think part of the Machu Picchu and all that is- Some is of the sea monster the cases uh, go up into Ontario, yeah. especially down to Lake Ontario and Lake Erie that, that do touch a little bit into. Yeah, it certainly wasn't anything done on purpose. Uh, yeah. We live right on the border. We love our Canadian brethren. But uh, yeah, I, I think it just went, once it, the final editing came down to it, and uh, that's a good point, but it certainly wasn't done on purpose to not bring more of Canada into it for sure. Maybe that's um, book two. It could well be. Yeah. We, uh, <laughs> I, I just thinking back, we, we used to go to Canada almost every other week at least. And I haven't been over since COVID started now. They finally relaxed all of the, uh, I, I guess what they had for restrictions are now off. So I'm looking forward to going back to Canada. Yes, I've thoroughly enjoyed your presentation. Um, have you ever been to the Sydney National Wildlife Refuge? Many to times. Look for Bigfoot? Uh, not specifically for that. We, we've heard some stories out of there. And as it falls in relation to the Tequamanon area, uh, I, I think there's definitely some potential that if a large hairy creature wanted to hide out somewhere and not be discovered, Sini would be a great place <laughs> to go. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Not to mention plenty of, uh, plenty of wildlife for sustenance there. So yes. that's, uh, pe people mm -hmm. have asked us before, why, why the UP for Bigfoot? And I think, what, where else would you want to go? You, you've got miles and miles of undeveloped waterfront. You've got forests uh, deep and thick and unexplored. And if a large creature like this could hide in a, even a small breeding population, you know, you could probably get away with it in the UP. We've, uh, we've had a chance to look at some actual plotting maps of not only for Bigfoot research, but also for, if you've heard of the Michigan Dog Man or uh, the Beast of Bray Road, which is kind of Wisconsin's version of the Dog Man, and some plotting maps of researchers who have, who have worked in it. And you can literally see stories that are reported once they're red dotted on a map. They're all very, very close to a water source and to a very thick wooded source. And, and obviously that's, that's leads us to believe that one, it's for shelter and hiding and two, it's for easy access to food and water. And you see that in, in, in almost any type of, of cryptid type tracking maps. Were you gonna ask something, Evelyn? I was, um, you said that, I don't know if everyone heard this, but you were saying at the beginning that you were doing a paranormal thing last and, night. Can you? <laughs> oh yes. yes. Yeah, I, we were. We, so again, that's part of our, our team, the Upper Peninsula Paranormal Research Society, and um, that's what we've been doing for 20, almost 25 years now is, is investigating paranormal cases and, 
and uh, and we were called into a local place last night, uh, one of the local businesses in our area that we hadn't been to yet. We've investigated many areas here in Sault Ste. Marie, but this was a newer one for us. And um, so, yeah, so uh, we were at that place. It's a restaurant in town called The Wicked Sister, um, again, which is very, uh, the, the synchronicity of, of the book you were talking about. And uh, small little place, but wow, did we come out of there last night with... Uh, uh, ready for Halloween. I'll tell you what, it, uh, it, it was a very interesting place that it, one of the things Brad and I love best about the research that we and our team do is it's really the post stuff. I mean, we love being in the field and, and having those moments happen that you can't explain, but it's after you get that, we get all of our audio and video collected and, and personal experiences. And then Brad's the historian of the team. And then we sit down and we do the post research and really try to start to, it becomes the puzzle. And we try to start to put it together to, to make sense. And nine times out of 10, it never does. But every now and then you get that one moment where it's like, all right, these stories are connecting. There's something, there's a picture starting to, to form here. And we really, we're hoping that, that what happened to us last night and the experiences we had are going to lead into that. We've got, a, we've got a good lead on that right now. You'll probably have to wait for book three for that. <laughs> okay. Um, have you been to the lighthouse at Gulliver? Oh, yes. many times. Yes. We, Sichuan Point. That's one of oh, our yes. favorite places. We call it our Disneyland because every time we go there, uh, something amazing and weird and strange happens uh, that we just cannot explain. So Marilyn Fisher, who's the head of the Historical Society there, um, we've gotten to know Marilyn very, very well over the years. We've done a handful of fundraising uh, events for her to help raise money for the lighthouse. Uh, they're, they're very near and dear to our heart there. And it's one of our favorite places to go. One of our favorite stories came from there was uh, it's one of the only places that we've actually seen what we'd consider to be a full body ghost mm -hmm. apparition that walked by some windows and pulled open a curtain and looked out at us. Yeah. No one was in the house. We were the only ones there. Marilyn had left us for the night. We were letting our gear do its work in the house for a while. We all just went outside to kind of let it do its thing and witnessed by the entire team, this figure in the house where no one was there. We were the only ones there, walk by a window, go over to another window. And all of a sudden you watch this curtain, the curtains were closed and you watch this curtain get pulled back as though someone's on the other side pulling back and wanting to know what's going on outside. And, uh, but that's just, that's the big one. We've had so many unanswered incidences there. Uh, one time Brad even thought I goosed him. I am uh, still he, not certain he didn't. He thought, he thought I, he thought I, we were, we were packing up our gear at the end of the night and, and I'm about maybe 10 feet behind him. All of a sudden I see him jump up in the area a little bit and he turns around and he goes, did you just grab my ass? And I'm like, no, why would I, grab, why would I do that? We're both happily married. We've been to buddies forever and I've never done that. Why would I do it tonight? And it, it, yes, I've heard, I've heard many stories about that, including some of the houses along the point. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Even, yeah. We've never investigated any of the houses heading that way, but we've heard that there are a lot of uh, incidences there. It's an interesting area in and of itself where it lies because reports that have came from there have included UFO sightings, mm -hmm. uh, dogman sightings. If you're familiar with the Michigan dogman legend uh, has been cited in that Gulliver area and, and the extremity of some of the hauntings that have been recorded at, at Seshua Point. It just all kind of ties into, is, is this a portal type area? Is yeah. there some energy there that we can't yet discern what it is? We always say, um, when we walk into Gulliver, it, we always feel like we're walking into grandma's house. We're expecting to see our grandmother there baking cookies. We It's always a warm, welcoming feeling mm -hmm. at Sichua Point Lighthouse. Very different 
from the feeling we get when we're at Whitefish Point Lighthouse, which is another yes. place we love in a very sacred area. Um, but it's a very heavier energy um, at Whitefish Point. And one of the weirdest things that ever happened that both Brad and I witnessed leaving Whitefish Point one night, it's mm -hmm. about five in the morning, the whole team's in one big uh, big van, work van, all of our gear is packed up. We're half, a, you know, we're, we're tired. We're ready to go. We're just pulling out of the main driveway, heading down that road. And I'm sitting in the front passenger seat. Brad's in the bucket seat right behind me. And we both must, we, we were both looking in the same area. We we're just looking into the woods as we we're leaving. And we both witnessed what we thought was the head of a gray alien. It was that look. It was very strange. Yeah. It was very late. But there was this mild bioluminescence to whatever popped up next to us. And it was just one of those quick, you see it for a second or two, and then we're gone. And we kind of looked and they said, uh, and I, wasn't I don't know if anything. we want to get involved with this thing or not. But <laughs> And I wasn't going to say anything because I thought there's, it's me, I'm half asleep. No one else saw it. And then I don't know how Brad and I ended up, one of us must have said, did you see that? And we both realized we both saw the same thing. But it's the weirdest thing just off the the road line, but back in the trees, and it just popped up as we were driving by, and it was... If it was a kid in a Halloween mask, he was out very early to try and prank us. Yeah, so. and it worked, you guys. <laughs> yeah. It's 8 o'clock now, so I don't I mean, any more questions or whatever you guys need to do? Yes, Victor. We had a, one question in the chat room about the Paulding light. What do you guys oh. have to say for that? Paulding is... Uh, it's interesting because it's been supposedly debunked so many ways and by Michigan Tech students and by as headlights but but we've uh, we've also talked to people that have investigated that when the road's been closed off and they say the lights still show up and there if you're not familiar with the Paulding lights uh, way over to the west uh, from us anyway uh, it, it, there, there are a couple of different legends. One of the more prominent is it was a railroad man who got crushed on some tracks near there, and he's walking through, and his lantern's still swaying down, uh, down this certain trail. Uh, another one is that it was a dog sled team and a mail carrier, I believe, that was on it that got killed, mm -hmm. and they were murdered down this trail, and they're they're still on their way. Whatever it is, we're not exactly sure. We did do, where were we? We were in Gwynn, I think, at a library doing a talk a year or two ago. And we had an older gentleman approach us after our, our talk. And he said, when he was younger, he said, I can, I can put the headlight explanation to bed right now. He said, when I was younger, that road did not run through that they're claiming the headlights come from. And he said, these lights would still show up. He said, we used to take our girlfriends there to go park and get them to cuddle into us because we knew they'd get scared because these ghost lights were still appearing back then. I, I, I'm guessing it's some type of a natural phenomena that we haven't been able to absolutely put the, uh, put the fork in yet to say this is swamp gas, whatever it may be. Um, and I'm not saying it's swamp gas. It's some light phenomena that's happening. We haven't seen anything from any of investigations to make us think that it is a ghost or paranormal phenomena. I, I, I personally think it's something that just has not been explained yet. Yeah, we haven't been there as a team. A couple of our team members have personally been there. 
both of their experiences were very similar, which was literally they watched this thing come right towards them. Uh, and we talked to many, many people who experienced the same thing. So I, I, I'm of the same mindset as Brad. I don't believe for a moment it's headlights or anything from the, the, the road behind the tree line. Um, but I do believe it's going to be something natural uh, once we figure out what it is. But uh, I, do I think it's a ghost? No. Do I think it's darn cool? Heck yeah, I do. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Any right. other questions out there tonight? All right. Well, I really enjoyed your book. I, I, the, the Becks, the B, yeah. I, that part got me. I didn't know anything about that. <laughs> yeah. And if you haven't read the book or you're, you know, in the middle, I mean, the ending is good. I like the swings. That was really my favorite in that. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, we, again, as Brad said, we really went out of our comfort zone. I shouldn't say comfort zone. We we got about out of what we were used to doing ghosts for 20 some years to get back to what we loved as kids, which was anything strange and weird. And it was a lot of fun to do that. And this book, both books, obviously, as, as any author knows, it's a labor of love, right? You love doing it. And, and when you finally watch it come together on the pages and then you talk to people who enjoyed it, uh, it means a lot. And and on behalf of Brad and I and Steve, who was part of the first book, uh, for these books to be part of the, the this group and the UP Notables uh, authors, it's uh, it's an absolute honor. And it's us. too, I think like once you once you start hearing these stories, you hear more of them like Troy Graham, he's a UP author and he has a book of poetry called Freshwater Mermaids. And he talks mm -hmm. about how he saw a mermaid in Lake Superior. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's all around. <laughs> it, it is. And you're absolutely right yeah. with that one, Evelyn. It's all around. We just got to be looking for it. It's there. Yep. Oh, last comment. I, I just, um, I thought it was kind of, kind of makes you feel good in a way of these ghost ships that they are, they're always right before something bad happens. So if you see one of them, you should, you know, stay to shore. Mm -hmm. They seem to be warning you. It seemed kind mm -hmm. of a nice Thing. Yeah, almost like a guardian angel of sorts. Yeah. I don't think the Great Lakes gets the recognition it deserves for its ghost ships either. Yeah. Most of what you hear are ocean stories. Um, you know, it, it, it's it's amazing to me that the 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 amount of ships that have gone down under tragic circumstances on, on Lake Superior and all of the Great Lakes that we don't hear more of this lore passed down from generation to generation on the ghost ships, whether they be just tall tales of the sea or in a lot of the cases that we researched, actual sightings by trained mariners. So I, I think there's a rich lore there that's yet to be tapped. Uh, I think so too. Yeah, well, great, great night. And where I'm, I'm all ready to go to bed have a nightmare, I guess. So <laughs> <laughs> then we did our job. Yes. <laughs> All right. Thank you. And we'll see everybody on November 10th, where we will be reading Karen Dion's The Wicked Sister. And that's what we will be talking about. And if you haven't read it yet, I think you'll enjoy it. Okay. Have a good evening, everyone. Good night. Thanks, everyone. You've been watching the UP Notable Books Club, brought to you by the Upper Peninsula Publisher and Authors Association. To join or for more information, please visit us at www.upa.org or www.upnotable.com.